0: G'day everyone welcome back to Talking Leadership this is Eric Perez by way of introduction my guest today is a facilitator board advisor and fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Can I welcome to the podcast, Melinda Muth? How are you, Melinda?
1: Great, thanks, Eric, for that lovely intro.
0: Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? So, where did you go to university? What other maybe leadership positions have you held? A bit of a background on you, Melinda.
1: Yes, well, you can tell from the accent that I'm not a native. So let's just get that out of the way right now.
0: Is that a New Zealand accent I can detect?
1: That'd be so. That'd be nice if it was. However. It is a North American accent. And, uh, you know, I was trying to pass myself off as Canadian during the last four years, but, you know, now I can, maybe I can claim it again. I have had a bit of, um, oh, you know, there's a thing in Australia, the, the cultural cringe. Well, I've had a bit of reverse cultural cringe. Lately. But I've been in Australia for almost 35 years. And I basically got here on a potato chip because my then husband, was transferred to Australia to work in a joint venture that Arnett's had with PepsiCo. And so, you know, one day I got the message, how would you like to live in Australia? And I thought, great, let's go. The thing is, I did want to be able to work while I was here, because that means a lot to me. And that caused a bit of a kerfuffle with the uh, higher ups at PepsiCo, because we are going to talk about leadership today. And there are some gender perceptions about who can be a leader that I have encountered in my life. And I suppose that incident was one of them. They thought that I would, I suppose, come to Australia, sit here, uh, maybe go to the American Club and reminisce about where I wasn't. I wanted to be here and be in it. So anyway, I did get that work permit. And at that stage in my career, I was a fashion retailer because my original degree is in design. I went to the University of Cincinnati College of Design, Architecture, and Art. I had hoped to be an architect. Uh, My dad was an architect, and he said I could do it because women cannot be on construction sites. That's just not where you can be. Your
0: father said you couldn't. Do my that.
1: father said I could not do I, that. Um, look, he was a terrific guy, but he had some specific ideas about what women could do and not do. And he said, you know, you can do the fashion design degree because it's OK for women to know how to sew.
0: OK, I, I have no comment. So, there. Um,
1: so, you know, we're, we're talking about a leadership journey here today. And I think one of the things I'd like to say is no one had any expectations that I would be leading anything. And I suppose I didn't think about that either. I just wanted to be able to uh, achieve something worthwhile and do something, you know, do that with some kind of work that I enjoyed because I thought commerce, boring. So I did my design degree I then, much to my parents' horror, hired a U-Haul truck and jumped in it with my roommate and moved to New York City. And I I worked for a major retailer there. Because in one's journey along life, you have to take the feedback. And maybe some of the things that you want to do or you aspire to do that you might enjoy doing, you come to find out that maybe you have not got that capability at the same strength level that you had (laughs) hoped.
0: Sure. So let me ask you a question. You've opened this up by saying some of the limitation to the start of your journey. Do you think Uh that has changed for women in the workplace over your career, at least Melinda?
1: I think there's a, a lot more openness to the idea that you could do something and young women are getting the message. They can do things. When they try to go for those things, there's still some walls, ceilings, and cliffs that they will encounter because, you know, humans being humans. Uh, we're going to talk about, we're, we're talking about the subject of leadership and you can't separate that from who we are as, as a species, you know, there are, hu- there are human behaviors, whether people want to accept them or not, you know, there's some great things about humans and there's some not so great things. And, uh, you know, we can, we can talk about those as, as we go through the, th- the thing is you have to decide whether you're going to keep, you know, you, you're going to let that overwhelm you or whether you're going to lead yourself by, you know, starting by self-leadership, and, you know, push forward uh, regardless of the, the roadblocks. So look, we're all dealt uh, a hand of cards and you have to play that hand the best you can. And when things get tough, this is what I always say to, to people that I'm uh, coaching or even to my own daughter, you have to keep playing that hand because if you put that down and stop, then you know what the answer is, nothing. So you have to keep going, you have to keep going. So I did, so I did. Uh, I went to New York, I got the job. I learned a lot there. I I chose fashion retailing because it was alongside the design. And I thought I'll be dealing with designers and their products. So that was sort of the, the reasoning in that. And then you find out really the guts of the whole thing is about commerce. It's about business. And you know, there—that's th- a whole different discipline or you know way of thinking about things than from a design lens. So I, I looked around the place and I, I I said, well, who who's in the jobs I want to be in, and what kind of qualifications have they got? And so I realized that there was a pecking order, and it was uh, you know people who had MBAs and uh, people who didn't. So I thought, right, I'm going to get one of those.
0: Okay, you went to New York. You did you did that role. How did you move then? beyond that to do something else. I know you've got some other qualifications. I,
1: I won't go into all the details of how I, you know, ended up at Harvard Business School, but that's where I got that MBA. So that was a very useful thing uh, because it's a terrific school and there's an incredible network that goes with it. You know, there's a reason why why a place like that has a big brand name. You know, human beings are, you know, the way our brain works is we 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 look at the optics of things. We we like to categorize, put people, we like to make categories we don't like to analyze so whatever's on the surface you can see that in your daily life you know how it looks matters and people make snap judgments about other people and you know the kind of qualifications you have you know that that just gives people the opportunity to make a snap judgment about you know your your competence so having a harvard mba is a brilliant well was a brilliant thing for me on on a whole range of dimensions not the least of which is people think oh you know they they make a snap judgment now you know maybe maybe i wasn't a baker scholar or or whatever else um, but i got a lot out of that and have always been glad that i that i did that but then i i ended up uh, because you know people like to categorize my background had been working in retail So then what kind of offers do you get when you're in the big, you know, recruitment game? I wanted to, you know, leave retailing, but I was part of a dual career couple at that stage. And so that's how I ended up working at Neiman Marcus and my husband at PepsiCo. And we weren't there. I wasn't in that job very long before, you know how would you like to move to Australia? So that's when the Australian story began. And I, I had to start over all over again. Well, I didn't even have the work visa at first. So who was going to give me a job here? Well, I went to David Jones, didn't I? Because, you know, people pigeonhole you, you know, if in your career, you've decided that you want to make a change, and you want to work in some other field, you know, the Again, the 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 bars are against you because every you know headhunter or person who's hiring wants to know that you already did the job. This notion that you can go and do new things because you've got the capability—well, that that doesn't happen very easily.
0: It's not how people recruit. It's you. not. My
1: my my daughter has tried to switch out of a, a career as a, a as an art historian into user experience design, and oh, is she up against it in terms of you know the interviewing process? I just said to her. You know, the comment I made to you earlier, just keep playing your hand. You know, somebody's, you, you got to get some, you, you, you got to influence, persuade, network, whatever to, to get that opportunity. And all of those skills will stand you in good stead if you're going to become a leader. And so I I came here and then, you know, I'm only here for a short while and then we get transferred back to Texas. What you think is leadership of of an organization from the outside, you know, because things look a certain way on the surface, as I am saying earlier, and then you get into them and it's it's quite a different. I wanted to live in Australia though. I decided that's what I I wanted to do. So I, I went to the Australian consulate and there was a program, a business migration program. So I wrote a business plan and got permanent resident visa based on that, that business. And of course, then I got my best degree. And that was from the University of Hard Knocks. Because I come out here and I, I felt this This shows you the power of your own mind over, over some, some of the things that happen to you and in your interpretation of how you'll play your hand. So I thought I was morally bound to start that business because that's how I got the visa. You know, nobody ever asked me if I had started that business. You know, that was right during the recession we had to have. Oh, gee. Now there's an experience because I thought I've I've worked in a few big places now, and I think I know something. I'll start, you know, in an industry I think I know something about because I also know most new businesses fail. And I'm thinking I'm not going to be one of those. So it, it didn't fail, but it didn't go particularly well either. And what happened was after living through that and not falling over, I, I I was burnt out on it. And then I came back, I came back to, you know, where I'd been at the very beginning, which is, I want to do something. I want to do something that's, you know, valuable. I want to achieve something. I want to do something that I enjoy. When the PhD came in, and I won't go through all the, what I went through to come up with that idea, but I ended up doing my PhD at the, um, Australian Graduate School of Management as it was called then at University of new South Wales and and then I found the thing that I you know really love to do, which is teaching. Now, in our university system, well, I suppose teaching matters, but it doesn't matter as much as research. <laughs> if you want to get promoted in that system, you literally that old adage about publish or perish that is a very true thing
0: on that uh, because casting, by mind back when I did my undergraduate degrees, um, I remember the best Uh, lecturers we had were uh, more of a teacher than uh, a purveyor of information and some lecturers that I had very very intelligent men and women but it was like they wrote learned their session they regurgitated a bunch of information and then they left the room there wasn't discussion debate that was had in your tutorials but they, it wasn't a lecturer in front of you. It was a, uh, someone who was on the app in that system as well. So they didn't have the experience of the lecturer. So it's a, it's a very mixed, um, very mixed thing. And yeah, have, have to agree. Uh, but again, I'm looking at it, like you said, surface level from the outside. I've never worked in a university. I don't know all of the politics in a university other than to say, if unis are like any other big institution, there's going to be silos, there's going to be internal competition. It, it's... Nothing changes. A, a big institution is a big institution. A
1: big institution, a big collection of human beings.
0: <laughs> correct, correct.
1: So, you know, the thing is, I've, I, I loved the, I love the teaching. And, you know, a PhD is a research degree because that's what universities are about. For me personally, you know, what's the point of creating knowledge if you can't share it? And being an educator is a profession in itself. And there are many things that go with being a professional educator. And when at that stage in my career, I thought, who are the people in my life who've had an influence on me who you know that I've really gained value from and I realized that all along the way it was great teachers I've had some great teachers in my life oh there's some fantastic people on the faculty at Harvard Business School Uh, but that's just one place I mean all through my life great teachers even in my undergraduate degree so I thought that's what I want to be you know and that's the thing when you find your purpose it energizes you to, um, you know, overcome whatever barriers are in your way. So I don't know if all of this makes me a leader or not, because I I never set out to be a leader. For me, it was more of, excuse me, an achievement orientation and a a mastery of something and wanting to do something useful, which I, I think that I think that teaching is, you know, my purpose, you know, helping other people on their way by sharing information?
0: It tends to be what good leaders do. I, I think a lot of this is in what's in a name. So a lot of people that do volunteer positions don't have a formal title yet they're leading in their communities. And I, I guess the one of the things that drew me to having this conversation has been well worth having this conversation around um, what the, your Pathway around this thing called leadership, because it, it, it appears that the stuff that you're doing now for the Australian Institute of Company Directors, you're dealing with leaders all the time, and and so from that perspective, I, I might ask you this question: amongst those leaders that you've had the the opportunity to work with and and teach and and be collegiate with. What would you say are the key capabilities that you've seen in these people that make them effective leaders? Is there a list in your mind? Is there a, a couple of things? Well, I don't know what the number is. I'm just, I'm not putting a, a set number on it. But when we talk about leader capabilities, what, what are you seeing from the people, the leaders that you've encountered in your life, man?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that you have to separate this, this idea of leadership uh, from management. Because just because you're good at something doesn't mean you're going to be able to lead people. It's just it's it's analogous to the comment about you can do research so you'll you know something, you'll be a good teacher. Well, that's just not necessarily true. Because you can be really good at something. That doesn't mean you can lead other people to do it. Just like you may not be able to teach other people the thing that you know so much about. So I think what distinguishes uh the the people that I've uh, seen in my career who are good is that they, they recognize there's actually a behavioral element to all this, that P, you know, the, 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 the notion of people really matters. It's not just about the content of what you kn- know and trying to coerce people or cajole them into doing that thing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a lot bigger th- than that. So if I think about um, what I think effective leadership is, you know the core of it is is uh, personal effectiveness and the capacity to recognize that you know other people are important and to understand something about human behavior. And I I don't necessarily observe a lot of that uh, in the workplace. I I I may observe people paying lip service to it, uh, but if I could give you an example, you know, if you if you're talking about uh, boards of directors. I mean, the, the world of governance is driven by the law and finance, and those things are absolutely necessary, and I'm not trying to underplay how important they are, uh, but there's there's something else, and that's the human dimension, and if, if you come from a discipline of law or a discipline of finance or anything that that revolves around finance and data, you're not necessarily in the discipline of behavior. Just like people who are PhD researchers are in that discipline. They're not necessarily in the discipline of education. They just get thrown into that and they're supposed to figure out how to do it. And a lot of people do and do it very well, but you know, it's not like it's fully recognized. So the people that understand something about other humans and their impact on other humans are are the ones who recognize that if you want to get a group of humans to do something, you're going to have to know something about behavior and something about your impact on those people. Because once you're a leader, you're not doing the task anymore. And I suppose that was, you know, a critical juncture for me. Do you want to be uh, leading, influencing, persuading other people, or do you want to be developing expertise and mastery around a particular, um, function or area oh, and, that, and that, you know I, I decided there, there was a stage where I decided after I'd left the university and I'd had the business development marketing job leading the team at, at Deloitte there I decided you know I, I got to stay on the thing that matters to me and that is, is facilitation, teaching, because I, I do like research and, and ideas and staying on top of things. But I, I came to this juncture of, I think for me, it's more about personal mastery than it is about, you know, being in a hierarchy and having, you know, a, a specific title, which gives you a position in that authority structure. And then, you know, thinking about, what, what you're going to do, because when you get in those big authority structures, you find that, you know, people are always complaining about the politics. Well, that serves no useful purpose, because you've got humans, you've got politics, because you've got, you, you, I, I say leadership is about humans being with each other. Management is, is about humans doing you know, So you, you've got to decide, do you want to be on the doing or do you want to be on the leading? Because if you want to be on the leading, you better understand behavior. And so the people that understand that are, are you know, they, they are self-aware. They pay attention to impact that they make. They understand something about how groups behave and communicating with groups, communicating on different levels. I mean, they do have to be smart enough in their field to have a clear direction and uh, capacity to recognize the competitive playing field uh, but you're, you know when you're a leader in a large organization you're not doing things you're orchestrating you know and, and uh, you know a, a conductor is is conducting all the other instruments they're not playing anything up front the first violin is doing that but you know they're getting the whole group to, that's a different set of skills and it's very biased declared. I come from the behavioral sciences, don't I? So I'm going to say this, right? So, you know, people who are listening to this might think, oh, that's a bunch of punk. But <laughs> I think it really matters. I think we're all, you know, we're all humans and we're trying to interact and do things together. Why do we even think that the word leadership is important since none of us agrees on what it means? <laughs> that's what I've, I, you can't get one definition of it. That everybody's going to go, well, that's it. But if I, if I ask people to give me their definitions, the range is always about behavioral things, about inspiring, motivating, communicating, setting a direction. So there you go. You've got, you know, the person who can do that has got personal effectiveness. They've got some kind of a a set of strategic thinking skills, conceptual ability, because they can see the bigger, the bigger picture of things. They can see people as individuals. They can see people in groups, groups of groups. They can see you know that you have to have talent in those groups, and that you know groups of talented people have to you know achieve goals you know and they 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 are orchestrating it so you you're you're getting an outcome because it's no good just to be the nice guy and everybody's having a good time if they aren't performing because that's not going to work either so I suppose if I sum that up I'd say. Personal effectiveness, to to influence others, good communicator, strategic thinker, get, you know, get groups of groups to perform and, and figure out if you've got, you know, you've got enough talent to sustain everything. Is that a good enough list?
0: (laughs) Um, You've answered, uh, you've addressed a lot of the themes already here Uh between leadership and management. Uh, leader capabilities and that, um, I guess the, I'm interested and you unpacked it quite nicely with this thing around behavior and understanding human behavior it, it put it in a way that i haven't heard on any of the podcasts so again again to address your question before I, about whether you're going to contribute to the discussion that that's a contribution i think it's one that organization organizations assume or take for granted that leaders understand more than the technical aspects of their role as a leader because we spend a massive amounts of time with other human beings and i, I think now the, this this one you may have a view on. I definitely have a view myself, so I'm happy to share it here. Oh,
1: good.
0: Is that the bigger the organisation gets, I think the more removed from the human element the leader is and is trusting that his or her subordinate leaders and managers are doing the doing of leadership whilst they're doing the visioning the the foresight the strategic thinking the big ticket stuff and that that in itself that remo- removes certain leaders and entrepreneurs from the human element is when you're doing stuff at the macro level the people and relationships oh. are at the micro operational level and there's a there's a there's a very big delineation there but I, I also think the reverse is true that the smaller the organization the more time leaders and entrepreneurs can get to know a small team and make them a massively functional very productive team high performance team if they're a small number of human beings because I, you know numbers to me matter in some of these conversations so if you've got a team of five five people and yourself is easy to manage mm. five of you you, you can set goals together you can work together collaborate together very easily if you're the head of when know, pick an organization coca-cola or uh, one of the, the massive uh, transnational organizations and you've got tens of thousands of people i have serious doubts that the leader leaders of the organizations could say to you i i know 100 people out of that 10,000 by name it, it's not it's not humanly possible and you would what you would waste the time the time of the leader if they if they had to get that operationally focused because then they're not leading, they're managing. And that that that's a massive distinction. And some people that have agreed with that view. I, I think it's true enough from what I've seen in my own mm-hmm. travels, but there are some leaders and these are the people that break the mold, that will spend inordinate amounts of amounts of time talking to their staff because they really want to make it known that yeah, I might be in a position of leadership, but I'm exactly like the rest of you. And uh, this this is the bit that not confuses me, but gets me to the point of asking some questions is, if culture is set at the top, then mm-hmm. you really do want someone that, ha- that has the ability to stride the human technical divide. If you can't, I think some of the most toxic cultures that I've ever worked in, and there's been some doozies, I think mm-hmm. that comes from the top, not from the bottom.
1: I'm with you. The more people are distant from each other, and don't know each other the easier it is for them to give up having any empathy or regard for an individual and there there is so much uh, psychology and sociology literature about that but i don't know that it ever gets taken into account be you know uh, at, at senior levels because people are too busy di- getting the numbers the finance the whatever i mean maybe i'm selling them short uh, but i i just know that you know taking a multidisciplinary approach to things is not what people always do. So, you know, there's plenty of science about group size that says that, you know, the most effective decision-making groups are seven. And then, and part of that whole vein of literature is that people work best in communities of 150, because in a hundred, you know, that's about the brain's capacity for keeping track of other people and knowing them, once it gets bigger than that, people can game the system and then they become they become invisible. But you know, some of these principles about how people, you know, work together, we don't use those organizations. I'm, t- I'm actually trying to write a new book about this and I'm calling it, you know, the big work myth. And I'm trying to identify 10 of the biggest myths and traps that we all fall into thinking, you know, number one, uh, my first one, which you might like Eric is bigger is better. That is a myth. <laughs> I think that's a myth. So, you know, or or how many places have you worked where, you know, there's thousands and thousands of people, but we're all one team and all the messages from the top are about how we're one team, which might serve the, you know, serve a purpose for, you know, trying to align behavior, but we're not all one team. Humans don't work like that. You know, once I'm in a team, I don't like all the other teams. That's called silos, you know, and people think they're going to get rid of silos. I'm sorry. That's a basic of human behavior, us versus them. I mean, there's so much science around that. So you're not going to get rid of that. So then you have to think, how am I going to work with it? And how am I going to moderate it? So th- there's lots of things like that. Uh, you know, w- and what we, w- since we don't seem to want to go too far into using, utilizing that material in our decision-making, then uh, my, my, another one of my myths is the restructure rule. You know, if you change that organization chart around, you're going to make it better. There's just so many things like that. And they're part of how humans behave together. And I think it it, it behooves leaders to try to understand those things and work with them rather than just relying on, you know, we've, we've got to get these results. I think, you know, a lot of that has come to the fore during the the pandemic while people had to end up talking in a forum like this all the time, and we're even more removed from each other.
0: When people spend, and I'm, I'm talking millions of dollars across many industries, uh-huh. trying to reorganize organizations so that they don't have the hierarchy they had before, you end up with something that looks like a hierarchy anyway. <laughs> and unless yeah. unless you're prepared to have, in theory, a completely flat structure with everyone equal in that flat structure, and maybe one person doing mm-hmm. the big picture leading, it's not going to work. You, you're really achieving a flat structure where everyone's happy and there's no silos. I don't think reflects one, how we work as human beings, but two, and this is no disrespect to those that, that work in that space of trying to change the, the organization of, of a business is no one's come up with a better model yet. Um, the hierarchy seems to be the template that we have ingrained in us as human beings. Yes. I don't see necessarily another hierarchy coming in or, some, sorry, another thing to replace that. And I'm, I'm not talking politics here because even amongst political systems, you have certain hierarchies inherent in those systems because someone has to do the leading Uh somebody has to do the following and it's and what one thing you mentioned before and it's now um, helped me at least with my understanding of this from a leadership perspective is that there are people that want to lead and there are people people that could care less about leading they just want some direction and be left to do a task um, sometimes a highly technical Uh task so so those those of us amongst our friends and colleagues that are the artistic types and I, I know a lot of these people Structure and hierarchies, they don't give a crap about that stuff. They just want to be free to create and they want to be left alone to do that. And for someone who's very structure minded, I, I can see now why those two clash very often because someone who wants no structure versus someone who wants structure, they're diametrically opposed, yet they're still on that continuum because other pe- people can meet them in the middle and go, Well, we can have some structure, but we can let you be free. As well, and I think that's the dilemma of, of of effective leaders is how do you marry that stuff in the middle? And it depends on your industry too. I think if you're not driven by the profit motive, talking about uh, social entrepreneurial enterprises or enterprises that are about uh, giving back to the community, when the profit motive is not the driver, I think knowing and understanding your pe- people takes on a different shape because in a lot of those organizations, the bulk of your people are volunteers. People are there because they want to be there for reasons of, uh, of altruism or wanting to help their community without ha- having anything come back, particularly being paid paid for their time, so I think I think it varies. I, I'd I'd be interested when your book comes out, Linda is is to read the thing and to see if if you explore the myths of these things in the volunteer space. I think it's a very different world, and it's a world I want to explore a lot more because um, a lot of the leaders I've had the opportunity to speak with, including yourself, do have a background in the for profit space and all that means working for for a, for a paycheck. Like you, you 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 have to I I guess accept or not accept the crap that comes with working in the world of work when you're working for a paycheck when you're working as a volunteer that stuff doesn't it's not there as a barrier anymore
1: done a lot of work in the nonprofit sector and it's actually messier in some regard because people are there for you know more for value-based reading reasons and so then you know and and not for profit doesn't mean for loss
0: sure oh, yeah. no, no, no. you cannot, you oh, cannot oh,
1: keep a nonprofit entity together i mean you spend a lot of time you know looking at Looking at the numbers, and you, you might have a big volunteer base, but I think basically.
0: So what and- I meant, what I meant, and this, this is again, this is why I'm learning. This yeah. is why these podcasts are good. I work for a not-for-profit in the uh-huh. commercial fishing space. Um, organizations like parents and citizens organization in the school. Though to me, that is a group that is there to be a functional arm of the school to help the school community. But every one of those people, except maybe the principal, are there for a values based purpose not for a profit based purpose are all there, they're all there as volunteers.
1: I agree with that but all but they all have different values is of what course, I'm saying. Of course. So yeah, it's, a, agree, it's messy. Agree. agree. <laughs> you know what, what we're basically saying here is you know human behavior is messy and people are always trying to codify it and I'm not sure that that's you know really completely possible. You know, th- think about, you know, about your the,
0: values. Is it really? No,
1: I'm I'm saying human behavior is messy and humans oh, okay. interacting with each other. I mean, and people say they have values, but you, you don't know what their values are until you see how they behave. because they can say a lot of stuff. You know, the bigger groups are no matter what it is they're organized around. People have their, you know, their, th- you know, what underlies all these things is the extent to which I want to get what I want for me. Versus what I can get by banding together, you know, um, on the basis of some, you know, bigger, bigger ideology or task or, or set of views. And people are always having an argument with themselves about how much they want to put in to the group versus what they want to get themselves, you know. And different when when you're in a um, for-profit, you know, and you're getting a paycheck. Well, people are pretty well aligned about that, you know. But there are norms of behavior around. There's market norms and there's social norms and all organizations have them to some extent maybe they're in a different proportion and you might say oh a pnc is all about you know social norms but i'll tell you different parents have different things about they want what they want try to sit on a school board or a PNC committee, because parents don't agree. So they all want to do the right by their children. But what you want to do for your kid might be different than what I want for my kid. And I want the school to give my kid what I want them to get. And I, I'm and I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody's character. I'm just saying people, people, the older I get, the more I realize people don't agree about much. You know, what the drivers are, if you put money in it, that changes the dynamic. But if there's not money in it, you still have Human behavior, the drivers of human behavior, the disagreement about values, you still have all of that. And, you know, if you don't have money to align around, well, it can get sometimes even messier.
0: could agree with 80% of what you've said. For me, Mm -hmm. part of it, this is a big boy, um, maybe. uh,
1: You don't have to agree with me. People have different opinions. No, No, sure, sure, sure.
0: Sure. Go for it, (laughs) Eric. For me, there's an 80-20 split. I think because I've, I've had the privilege, and I, and I did this because I wanted to do this, and I, I can give you a reason why, yeah. um, I've not, not only sat on my school's PNC board yeah. and been part of an executive, which yeah. is ending this year, uh-huh. I'm, also, I was, I'm also the inaugural president of, a, of an independent... Uh, public school oh. so this, this is the first time i've been a chair of anything and i can see the difference in the functions of the different organs of the school from a macro perspective of how yeah. the school runs to the pnc which is very operational but also has macro elements to it and i yeah i, I can't in my heart of hearts i can't disagree that parent parents join these groups or teachers join these groups yeah. for various value-driven reasons.
1: Well, I think I think terrific leaders are are good people. <laughs> I mean, for me, uh, but <laughs> you, you can have lots of people in leadership roles as we observe around the world they are not necessarily good people. And I think you know people talk about leadership. What, what what they're looking for is you know decency in their interactions, how people are being with each other, like right? because you know if. If you've reached some level of maturity, you don't expect everything to go well all the time. Uh, you know, you know there's gonna be ups and downs. Uh oh, come know, on, we'll...
0: Melinda. I think should be going well all the time. <laughs>
1: uh oh, <laughs> the <thingy-naker. laughs> oh gee, bursting all the bubbles this morning. Well, because everything doesn't go, you know, well all the time. And to think that it would is like that's just not not realistic. But if you, you know, if the leader is a good person, like you might not like every decision they take, but you know, if if that person is decent, they have integrity, you have some level of trust, you know, you're going to go with it and you, you, you're going to ride the, the waves of the, the ups and downs. When, when they're not a person of integrity, you can't trust them. They don't have any competence, whatever. Then you don't like them and then you go poor leadership. But, you know, for me, maybe that's, I think maybe that's the reason we can't get uh, a, one definition of leadership because I think it's really about people crying out for decency in their interactions Uh, with each other and for some standard of behavior that we could all agree to but we we don't seem to have one and part of that is because there's there's just so many people trying to do so many things and there's so many uh, intersections of different variables and groups you could be doing all the right things like some of the people in your seafood industry have been doing in their businesses all the right things and then through no fault of their own Like COVID hits and then you can't ship your lobsters to China or whatever. It's got nothing to do with the sweat, the tears, the decency, the the, the work that you put into something. And it just, you know, it's just random. And so when there's a, a, a lot of those kinds of things happening, people go, why should I bother to be so good?
0: You throw up COVID-19. I think the one thing that that pandemic has done is, is almost put us all on a level play, playing field when it comes to okay. understanding uh, what change means and what having a curve curveball that hit all of us at the same time. Okay. I, I don't think anyone was well, well prepared for what this means okay. and definitely in the world of work in some ways is what leadership is about okay. and how it's applied to a change in your organisation. So again, ironically, when you mentioned organisational structure, we have more people than ever working from home, telecommuting. And one of the issues that was brought up, and I spoke with this on a podcast I did recently, would be great. Great to get your your views on this. Is that okay? You might have a, a team of ten, and they're all working from home. What's the thinking around? What does insurance mean if you've got ten satellite? of your business and what if someone gets hurt at home are you responsible as a business owner or are they responsible because they've they've opted to work from home and is is under COVID conditions now are you opting to work from home or should you be be back in an office I mean there there are big I think there's some big ticket questions that are going to come with uh, people wanting now to work in a very different way like I've had the privilege of being able to work from a home office for the last Mm -hmm. the COVID meant nothing to me it it, I mean it did mean something to me but I've been working from home for a long time and it suits me it suits my employer but there are lots of industries where you can't work from you can't I would hope surgeons surgeons can't work from home they can't be looking at a screen getting someone else to do the work in a surgical room and say hey do this and do that and I'll guide you from a from a damn zoom meeting Mm -hmm. it's not going to work there are some professions some industries where you can't but help have face-to-face interactions. But okay. me being an advocate, I can do my work from home forever. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't need to be in an office. I don't need to be giving lectures or, or being out in the world because I can do what I can do from home. But I'm my industry is not the same as every other mm-hmm. industry we deal with. And some need that that face-to-face. Example, the tourism sector. They need people visiting. Mm-hmm sites all the time and that's not happening at the moment. So yeah, I I think we could talk about that forever. But one one last question here, Melinda, and I'd love to to get your thought on thought on this. The nature versus nurture question. Are leaders born or made?
1: Okay. So I looked at that on your little briefing page and I crossed out the word or and I wrote and because the the because you know the human brain loves to make things binary it's that or that it's black or white well they're born and they're made you know think about it you know i uh, when children are born they've got you know a set of genetics and say you've got in your family you know the, the gene for height. Well, will that gene express itself or not? Now, if you're growing up in, I don't know, a country that has n- no food and you can barely feed your family, well, the height gene might be there, but without nutrition, you will not be as tall as you might potentially be. It's the same with all these characteristics that we're talking about in terms, of, even, even empathy. Some people have more capacity in their brain because it is a brain capacity for empathy and they can develop that. Some people don't have much capacity at all you know like I wanted to be an artist I tried to develop that capacity um but you know I just didn't have some of those talents and and no matter how hard I would work I would only be you know maybe average or slightly above it it depends so so some people really have a capacity for this plus they want to do it and they get an opportunity to develop it and they're they're really fantastic other people don't have much capacity they get put into something and maybe they're just the people that, you know, maybe they're just not so good at it, but they got part way anyway. We're all got a different starting spot in life. And it's an and, you know, and all these things are a bigger question of who we are and what our, you know, what our makeup is. You you can't boil it down to leadership because leadership is that's an abstract term and it's made think of all the range of things we've talked about today. So it's 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 so it's so many things. And what would catapult someone into um, a position of leadership and authority will be based on their capacity, uh, the environment they're in that may have opened up the opportunities. It's going to be all, all those different things. I, you know, I just know for my, myself, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I know I have very high autonomy needs. I like to, do, I like to be really good at what I can be really good at. And I don't have a need to be working in a big group, so I, you know, as you were describing, I, I love working at home. I've been doing that for a long time. You know, university work kind of lends itself to that. And then in the days when we we were teaching all face to face, then you could go and have your your fix of other people and interaction with them because you could go do the teaching thing. So that was like a great balance for me. Did I did I want to lead that whole system? Sure. I mean, could could I? Uh, yeah, I think I. You know, like I, there are some other things i I done or decided to do. My my personality characteristics, the opportunities that were there, because, you know, there is we didn't get into the gender thing. But, there, you know, there are some things there. I don't have a chip on my shoulder about it because I, I don't feel like I didn't get to do what I wanted to do because I'm, I'm, oh, yeah, uh, I'm,
0: I'm not, I'm, I'm not yeah. by any stretch of the imagination, if you want to. If you've got anything to say additional about the the <clears throat> gender issues that you faced? I, I, uh, for clarity, and in terms of the people that are listening, I'm listening in terms of the the leadership discussions I've had, whilst gender doesn't, yeah. you know, for the purposes of these podcasts, doesn't didn't matter to me. I think it mattered a little bit because I've t- tried to strike a balance between the amount of men and women that I yeah in this because given that the split is about 50-50 that I'd want to have half of my people talking to me being men and half being women. And everyone's bought a different lens. I've had maybe one or two women leaders that I've spoken to on this podcast and one is an emerging leader that said for her, gender and her ethnicity were barriers and that uh, people placed those barriers in front of her, which was not good to hear. But look, I do recall, it it might have been two or three years ago, reading uh some reports i don't know if it was the the organization that you do some work with at the moment, but the um australian um oh god the the sorry i'll, I'll, I'll
1: yes, again
0: the the australian institute of company directors yeah I'll, I'll find my words in a second that i don't know if it was them or another group brought out a report saying the the gender mix on boards and how we've progressed over time, and that we've still got a lot of work to do to try and get a balance of of gender on on boards and alone in leadership teams and organizations and I think that that to me seems to be an ongoing struggle because even politicians and political parties have come out making excuses why not this and why that when it comes to the gender mix and i've I've had the view and, and some will call it naive that you'd hope people get to positions of of influence, authority based on merit and what they know not who they are or their gender but i know that's bullshit
1: what once we finish this podcast you know or or, or whoever's listening to it you know just google warmth versus competence and look for the research of susan fisk f-i-s-k-e and it 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 will tell you it will explain a lot to you about how the world works and these are the things that if you're gonna be you know, leading groups of people, you need to understand how people form their social perceptions because it's not on some great analytical tool. It's the optics and it's the, you know, the, the, the wiring that we have as, as, as human beings. And so people use this combination of warmth versus competence. They decide about people in the first 15 seconds. I mean, I know that when I enter a classroom, you probably know that too you know, maybe the people in the room aren't consciously aware of the fact they've already decided about you 15 seconds later. It's pretty scary. You can't think about it too much or you lose your nerve, you know, and here I am, I got the wrong accent. So people immediately know I'm not from here. They don't know I've been here for 35 years and I don't have an American passport anymore, blah, blah, blah. You know, they decided something. I'm a female American. You decide something about that and about the age. People are doing that all the time.
0: Melinda, thank you for your time. For those listening, I've been speaking to Melinda Muth. She is a facilitator, board advisor, and fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. As always, thank you for following the podcast. Thanks again, Melinda.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, no I've, worries. I'm, I feel honoured that you would <laughs> that you wanted to include me in your podcast.
0: Uh, and, and thank no thank you because it's you're giving up your time to speak to me, so it's all good, Melinda. Thank you very much. Okay. That's this thing. Thanks again. And I'll catch you all on the next podcast.